Luke chapter 23. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible. For those of you who may be visiting, uh, and I've been saying in the three morning services, um, as we're entering into the Christmas season, you may be wondering why are we looking at the crucifixion and then next week we'll move into chapter 24, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we're going through the books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we have been in Luke for about a year and a half. It's been an incredible study. And I don't think it's any accident that we are looking at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ as we enter into the Christmas season. Because keep in mind, there was a reason that Jesus was born. He came to this world for a purpose, and that was to die. So we're reminded of that, and, and we're going to be encouraged in that as we look at this text once again that we're very familiar with, that perhaps is, is talked about only during the time of, of Holy Week or during Resurrection Sunday. Um, that'll be coming up in about four months. But it's such a blessing to look at these things. And of course, if you've been with us in our study of Luke chapter 23, we have seen Jesus on the cross on that place called Calvary, verse 33, the chapter tells us. Uh, Calavera in the Latin, it is Golgotha in the Hebrew tongue, the place of the skull. It was on top of Mount Moriah. It was the same place that Abraham would take his only son with the wood of the sacrifice on his back in Genesis chapter 22, 2,000 years prior to this. And as it was Abraham that would call that place the Lord will provide. And of course, Calvary, right outside the old city gates of Jerusalem, was that place that the Lord provided for you and for me as now we see God the Father watching his only son going up that exact same hill through the narrow streets of Jerusalem out the Damascus gate to that place of execution. And as we have seen, that Mark's gospel tells us that at the third hour that Jesus would be crucified. The scene here at the cross is very intense. It is chaotic. The people passing by, because there was a major road coming out of the Damascus gate, they would pass by that place of execution. The Romans did that as a message to people, don't you come against Rome and don't you cross Rome because this is what can happen to you. But the people that were passing by at that time were mocking Jesus. We know that the soldiers, they would mock him as well. And then the rulers, the religious rulers, would say that he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers that were crucifying him were casting lots for his clothing. And Jesus, meanwhile, is saying from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then last week, we also saw the two criminals that were crucified alongside of Jesus and how one of them would call out to our Lord and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded by saying, assuredly, I say to you that today you'll be with me in paradise. It's really a remarkable scene, what is being played out here at Calvary as Jesus is dying for sinful humanity. We saw Simon of Cyrene that would take and bear the cross of, of Jesus as Jesus fell under the weight of it. And he would take it up to Golgotha. Simon, of course, would be known as a leader in the early church as well as his two sons. And then all of a sudden we see here this, this man who had no hope whatsoever being crucified next to Jesus 
cries out to him and falls on the mercy and grace of our Lord. There was no hope for him whatsoever. He couldn't try to be good. He couldn't be religious. He's in his last hours. And here he receives the words of eternal life that you will be with me in paradise. And I want you to remember, for those of you who might be here thinking, well, is it too late for me? Or as you minister to others, because I've talked with those who are late in life and and they don't have much time and they think it's too late for me to come to Jesus to call out to him. It is never too late to call on him and receive eternal life as you believe in him and what he did in dying for your sins. As we give that message to others that it's never too late on this side of eternity. Call out to him. And so it's remarkable all the things that are taking place and then all of a sudden at noon it goes dark. Luke tells us that there was darkness over all the earth and the sun was darkened for three hours. It was not an eclipse. It was not a sandstorm. And then as Jesus out of the darkness would cry out, it is finished. Te telestai. It is finished. He's proclaiming he's done the work, that he's paid the price for our sins. And in that veil that separated in the temple, the holy place from the most holy place, you see only the high priest was allowed to go behind the veil on the day of atonement for a short time to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And that's where the tangible presence of God was. And as that veil rent from top to bottom, as Matthew's narrative tells us, that it was like the Lord was declaring open house. And even as Hebrews chapter 10 says to you and to me that we can come boldly into the Holy of Holies with confidence, not our own confidence, but in the confidence of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross because he shed his blood for you and for me. And now we can come into his presence, not just once a year, but we can do it any time of the year. We can do it any time of the day. And we can also just stay there as long as we want. And it's a marvelous privilege that you and I have that Jesus has provided for us. Always keep in mind that not only did he provide forgiveness of sin and the hope of heaven, but he brings us into right relationship with the Father that only comes through Jesus Christ. And so now as the the sun begins to give its light once again, we read in verse 46 of, of Luke chapter 23 that when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. At the ninth hour, Jesus would cry out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last, uh, quoting from Psalm 31, verse 5. And this centurion who was watching all of this take place over the last six hours, he, he says that certainly this was a righteous man. Mark goes on to tell us that he would say that truly this was the son of God. And as we ask ourselves this morning, what would convince this centurion that Jesus was the son of God? And I think that as the sun went dark for three hours and then there was an earthquake that he knew that there was something very unique about Jesus. But I also believe that he comes to that conclusion that he's a righteous man, that he truly is the son of God by the way that Jesus would take on the cup of suffering and death. 
You see, usually crucified victims lingered on the cross for days. And we know that the longest that it's recorded in ancient records that somebody was on the cross was 13 days. Now, with the Passover here, being Jerusalem and the Sabbath, the soldiers would break the legs of the criminals to hasten their death. So they couldn't push up. The, the religious leaders didn't want the bodies on the cross as the Sabbath, as the preparation day was here. They wanted them off the cross by sunset. So what the soldiers did is they broke the legs of the two criminals so they could not push up and, and get a breath of air. Because crucifixion was a slow uh, process of dying. You really suffocated is what you did. Because as you hung on the cross, it began to the, push the air out of your lungs. And, and you couldn't breathe. And the only way you could get a breath is you, you would push up on those nails. Well, with the broken legs, they couldn't do that. Well, John's gospel tells us when they came to Jesus that he was already dead. And so they put a sword up into his chest cavity. And as that soldier pulled out that sword, out came, John records, the blood and the water, which, by the way, medical examiners will tell you that it is evident of a heart that ruptured. But before we leave this scene here, this centurion, this rugged soldier, the centurions were ones that, that uh, would be over 100 soldiers. Soldiers. They were known for their toughness, their physical ability, their strength. They really were the backbone of the Roman army. And I'm sure that this centurion was not impressed with the Jews until he watched this one, the king of the Jews, that is the king of all kings, how he faced suffering and pain and death. I have heard and I have watched Christians that have gone through their own suffering and pain and difficulty and loss. And as they go through that, as they go through the difficult circumstances of life, the way that they handled that situation that they face, as they were in perhaps a situation where they were betrayed, or perhaps somebody hurt them, uh, as they said, Father, forgive them, as they were willing to give that forgiveness. As, as they found themselves giving words of hope to others, knowing that God is with me. His promises are, are true for me. And I have the hope of heaven. And I'm going to rest in his love. You see, we as Christians, when we face our own pain and difficulty, as we have the testimony of Jesus Christ and God being glorified through us as broken vessels, the treasure that is in us, that it shines forth, that God can be glorified. And there are the centurions that are around us in our lives that will turn to us and say, how do you handle that situation? You have something that the world doesn't have to offer. And that is we have his comfort and we have his strength and we have his peace and he is our refuge and he is everything that we need. Even though there is a hole in your heart and there is hurt in your soul, you can turn to the Lord and as you are trusting in him and resting in his love that you will experience something that is so glorious, the glory of God and him growing you and then impacting a lot of people around you. And as they do see you go through that, you have the hope, the message of hope to give to them as Jesus is the Son of God. And so this centurion, he's watching all this and he comes to the conclusion that this truly is the Son of God. And then as Jesus' body there hung lifeless on the cross, the people began to leave. 
they beat their breasts, and, and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And now as we finish the chapter here in verse uh, 50 of Luke 23, we read, now behold. Now Luke uses that word behold. Oftentimes in his gospel, matter of fact, in chapter 24, we will see that he uses it a couple times. And when he uses that word, behold, he's saying this is important. Now, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. And he had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. And verse 54 tells us that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and saw his body, uh, how it was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So Joseph of Arimathea, as well as Nicodemus, as according to John's gospel, they, those two men now entered the scene. We don't know for sure if they were at the cross watching Jesus die for their sins, but I just suspect that they were. Nicodemus, no doubt, would think back to the words that Jesus gave to him a couple years prior to this. Do you recall in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said that we know that you come from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. But then Jesus went on to tell him that Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we do know that these two religious men that are there, and I'm sure Nicodemus, as he would see Jesus on that cross, he would think back to that time two years prior that Jesus said, I will be lifted up. Don't be lifted up on the cross. And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea came to understand what Jesus did for them. And as we see the scene here being played out before us, we know that they would experience the darkness. We know that they would experience the earthquake. Both of these men were members of the council, that is the Sanhedrin council. And I just wonder at this time if they knew, gotten word, that what had just happened prior to this is that veil that was 60 feet long and 30 feet wide, uh, or tall that is, and as wide as the, your, your hand, that it tore in half, that it came down there in the temple. They heard that that had taken place there in the magnificent temple in Jerusalem. And these two men come before us here in something that we need to stop and consider this morning. Their role in all of this in the epicenter of God's eternal plan for salvation. Because you see, the tendency for us is to forget about the burial of Jesus. We go right from the crucifixion of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus. But the burial of Jesus is very important because it is evidence and it gives testimony that in fact that Jesus was dead. Matter of fact, Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians. As he writes to that church in chapter 15, he's writing to them about the resurrection. It's the longest chapter uh, in 1 Corinthians. And he says to the Corinthian believers, because Jesus rose from the grave, his, had, you know, his body rose, a bodily resurrection, 
because of that, we as believers, we have the promise that we are going to be resurrected. We're going to get new heavenly bodies. But he starts the chapter by saying that, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So what Paul is telling them and telling us, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried according to the scriptures, and he rose on the third day. And as we look on this, here is Jesus hanging lifeless on that cross, his head laying on his chest. John tells us that he bowed his head. It is interesting that John uses that word because he borrows that word from the synoptic gospel writers when they use that word. It's the only other place that it is used when that man came to Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Same word that is used there. And here is Jesus. He laid his head. He bowed his head as he's on that cross, and he has now breathed his last. As we see the scene here, what's going to happen to the body of Jesus? You see, the disciples had fled. There's no mention of them being at the cross except for John, who eventually would take Mary, the mother of Jesus, away. They're there for a short time. John's narrative tells us that Jesus would address John, saying that, behold your mother and behold your son. And you, uh, you know, he commissioned John to take care of Mary. So John at that time would take Mary away from the scene, from the cross to his house, house is what the gospel tells us. Now, John evidently had a house in Jerusalem, and he is uh, there. He had access to Caiaphas, the high priest. He was known by the priest. So it is believed historically that John and his family uh, had a, a great fishing uh, business. Of course, they were fishermen from the Sea of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee. And Zebedee was well known in Jerusalem. Tradition tells us that he had a fish stand there. The religious leaders knew him. And so evidently they had a house there in Jerusalem. And here is John. He's away from this scene. He has taken Mary away to his home. The disciples, where are they? They're all hiding. And, and they evidently had made no preparations for Jesus' burial. None of them had even thought of that. Matter of fact, it was clear up until the night before this that they're in that upper room. They're arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. They're still expecting him to usher in the kingdom. Chapter 19 of Luke, remember, that as they are making that ascent from Jericho up to Jerusalem for the Passover, that it tells us that they were expecting for the kingdom of God to be ushered in immediately. So they didn't come to Jerusalem understanding that this was, was going to happen, even though Jesus over and over again spoke to them that we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders. I'm going to be put to death, but then I'm going to rise again after three days. It didn't click with them. So they are all gone. The ones who had followed him for over three years. But as we are told that Jesus was buried according to the scriptures, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked 
but with the rich at his death, because he had no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. It was really God the Father that had made preparations for his burial. You see, in our culture, in our day when someone passes away, there are arrangements made for a burial. There are arrangements made for cremation. It's a foregone conclusion that everyone goes through that process. But here at this time, the humiliation of crucifixion did not end at the cross. The humiliation would continue. Again, the Romans and other parts of the world, oftentimes they would leave the bodies on the cross until those bodies rotted off or were eaten by birds of prey. If they took the body down, they would throw it into a dump. And these religious leaders that didn't want the bodies off, you know, on the cross here, they wanted the bodies off of the cross for the Passover and for the Sabbath, Jesus' body would have been removed and then thrown into the Gehenna Valley in the dump of Jerusalem. And there thrown into the trash and the dogs and the jackals would come along and they would eat off of what was there. That's what they are facing here. And that's something that we don't think about. There is no Peter here who said, Lord, I'll, I'll never leave you. You can count on me. He wasn't there. None of the disciples are there. They did not go to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Mary's at the house of John. And even the brothers of Jesus, Jude and James, you have their epistles there in the back of the Bible. They weren't believers until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't ask Pilate for the body. They didn't prepare for that to give him a, a proper burial. But here we see that Jesus' body is facing being thrown in the garbage heap in Jerusalem. But God in his word has said that he would be buried according to the scriptures. And all of a sudden out of the shadows comes this man who comes Joseph that none of Jesus' family knew. Probably none of the disciples really knew. None of the women who are watching from afar knew. Joseph is told to us by all four Gospels. Luke tells us that he is a good man. He's a just man. That he did not consent to the council's decision indeed. Luke telling us that he's a member of the council. Mark tells us that he was a prominent council member. In other words, he had great influence in the council. He would be a voice that they would listen to and it's debated by scholars whether it would be Joseph of Arimathea that was there at that illegal trial of Jesus at Caiaphas' house in the middle of the night. Because one of the gospel writers tell us that it was a unanimous decision that he should be put to death. And that it tells us here that Joseph did not consent to that. He did not consent to the decision or the deed as they would uh, blindfold Jesus and they beat Jesus at that time. So it could be very well that Joseph of Arimathea was not at that, that illegal trial that took place the night before. Here is Nicodemus that comes along with him, as we know from John's Gospel. Nicodemus is called the master teacher of Israel by Jesus, as I mentioned in John chapter 3, as he came and talked with Jesus. These men would have great status in the nation. They have very prominent positions. Now John tells us that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. John chapter 19, verse 38, for you note takers. 
Joseph is a wealthy man according to the Gospels. He's going to have a tomb carved out of the rocks in Jerusalem. He's not going to be buried in his place of ancestry in Arimathea. That would be customary to do that. He's making his own tomb that is carved out of the side of the mountain in a garden. It would come at a very, very high expense. It is new. No one had ever laid in it. To have workers come with hammers and chisels to carve out this tomb that would be fairly large. When you go to the garden tomb in Jerusalem, <clears throat> it is a tomb. As you go into the tomb, is where you know multiple bodies could lay, and there was an area where family members could come and mourn. So it's a fairly large tomb that is there. And then to have a trough that on the outside where a large stone that is round could be rolled to close the tomb or to open the tomb, it would come at a cost that is unimaginable. Joseph and Nicodemus no doubt had been talking, realizing that this Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And both of these leaders step out of the secrecy of their belief and into the open. And they go to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. And Mark, it tells us that taking courage that Joseph went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. It took great courage for Joseph to do this, to go to Pilate. Pilate, who's already frustrated at the religious leaders, has had enough of them, that he would go to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. And it is Pilate that could have said, you're not a relative. Why do you want the body of Jesus? But he goes. And it took courage for Joseph and Nicodemus to now come out for all to know that they are believers of Jesus. And it would come at a great cost for them to do this. They would be cut off from everything. Remember that the religious leaders, that they hated Jesus so much, determined to put him to death, that they beat him, they mocked him, they delivered him over to the Romans, even as Pilate is there trying to make a decision concerning Jesus on three different occasions, said, I find no fault in this man, that it says that they became very argumentative. They, they continued to hurl accusations at Jesus. There was a tumult that was rising up, is what John's gospel tells us. And even as Jesus is dying on the cross, that they were there mocking him. And to know that these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph, would come and ask for the body of Jesus to take care of Jesus' burial, to give him a proper burial, would be at a great offense to those religious leaders. These two men now would be cut off from, from everything that they had when they saw what Jesus did for them that he was lifted up for their sins. They said, we are going to go to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. And they would do so in courage, going to Pilate, even though they would be cut off from their position, cut off from their families, cut off from their wealth, probably cut off from their inheritance, cut off from their, their status. Tradition tells us that Nicodemus, also being wealthy, one of the three wealthiest men of Israel, that when his daughter got married that he had the most opulent wedding that Jerusalem had ever seen. That was before this time here. And it also tells us that she is found gathering barley from the floor of a stable not many years from this time because her father Nicodemus had associated himself with Jesus and with the Christians. Tradition also says that Peter and John baptized Nicodemus. There is evidence that Joseph 
He would be sent to that area of Britain, sent by Philip to Gallusburg uh, in Somersetshire, the chapel Joseph of Arimathea is there if you go there today. And these men dared to ask Pilate for the body of Jesus as they come out officially to own Christ as their own Savior. We read that Pilate, he marveled that Jesus was already dead. It had only been six hours. So he summons the centurion to find out if he really was dead. And, and when it was confirmed, he granted the body to Joseph. It is late in the day. Burial preparations need to happen quickly before the sun sets and the Sabbath begins. And Joseph, he brings the fine linens back to Calvary. Nicodemus, we are told, again from John's narrative, brings the burial spices to Calvary. And Jesus, from the time of Judas' kiss, a betrayal there in the garden to the time that he breathed his last was in the hands of those men, the religious leaders and the Romans, that were full of anger and hatred and malice, and they beat him beyond recognition. Now he's going to be handled with loving hands from these two men who will take care of the body of Jesus for burial according to the scriptures. It was Peter that said on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was all foreordained that these two men would be used to put Jesus in the tomb. Joseph, he brings the linen and no spices. Nicodemus, he brings the spices and no linens. Obviously, they had talked. There was a plan. And when they come back to Calvary, it tells us here that Dr. Luke describes that Joseph took the body of Jesus down from the cross. Mark writes the same thing. So did the Roman soldiers lay the cross down to where they can take the spikes out of his hands and out of his feet? We don't know for sure. But the language here, the grammar, indicates that Joseph had to, with a ladder, go up on that cross and bring the body of Jesus down from the cross. That's what it's telling us taking the spikes out of his hands and feet. He would be covered with blood, which means that he's ceremonially unclean. They would wash the body of Jesus, the tahara, the washing of the body. The women would continue to be at a distance. They couldn't be present or close by when this process was being done. Did Joseph and Nicodemus prepare Jesus' burial there at Calvary? Or did they go that short distance to the tomb in that, that room where the mourners would be? Did they prepare him there? We don't know for sure. But it would be done very discreetly. And then they would wrap the body of Jesus in linen in the burial clothes in a linen shroud, to tokahim is what it is called. And these men would take care of this process. They would anoint the body with the burial spices. And what is interesting that John tells us that Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and spices. We're familiar with the Christmas story, aren't we? And it reminds me, as Luke chapter 2 tells us, that 33 years earlier, another Joseph took the same body of the babe of Bethlehem and wrapped them in swaddling linen clothes. And the wise men would eventually come bring in gifts, and one of those gifts was myrrh. 
the babe of Bethlehem was also placed in a stone manger. You see, when you go to Israel, we show you that the mangers at that time, they were not wooden, they are stone. We've shown pictures of it, stone feeding troughs. The first Joseph places the babe in a stone manger, and now this Joseph places the body in a stone tomb. Full circle, kind of interesting. And also we know that he would be put into linen, the linen cloths. In Leviticus chapter 16, we were told that the material of the high priest, he would wear on the one day each year on the Day of Atonement, he would wear linen clothes, not the beautiful robes and garments of the breastplate and the mitre on his head. That was all taken off by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. He just wore linen like all the other priests, exactly like every other priest wore, the linen clothes. And then the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat between the two cherubim, those two angelic beings, where the blood was sprinkled, where the glory of God was tangible. And in that tomb, we're going to see in the next chapter next week that there are two angels on either side of the place where Jesus laid two angels, a picture of the mercy seat, and the high priest stripping down to his linen garments, and that high priest would begin to minister in a very special way. Here we see that Jesus was laid in a tomb that had never been used. That's important because let there be no confusion that only Jesus was in that tomb and only Jesus would rise from that tomb. And the women from Galilee, as we read again in verse 55, they observed the tomb, how his body was laid. And that's an important note because there are those who will come along, try to dismiss the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they will say, well, Jesus didn't rise because the women went to the wrong tomb. Well, Luke, inspired by the Spirit of God, says that they observed the tomb and Jesus being placed in the tomb. They are eyewitnesses of his burial. And then they returned and prepared spices of fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And now you and I, that we can rest. Because Jesus cried out from that cross, it is finished. And you know the story that he only borrows Joseph's tomb for the weekend. And these guys were secret disciples until they saw what he did. They saw him on that cross, Christ crucified. And now they say, we're going to go on record to say that we don't care if we lose our prominent position in the council or in the nation. We are going to ask for the body of Jesus. And I just want to remind you, if you're here and you're very hesitant about proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. You might be thinking, I'm going to lose some of my friends. I'm going to lose that, that status and position in my workplace. That my family is going to hold me out at arm's length. That if you are, are having that kind of struggle and you have that heart today, this is what I would encourage you to do, especially this Christmas season, this week, even this afternoon. That you get away and you spend some time with the Lord. And you look at him the way that he was lifted up for you personally and individually because of his love for you. And he went to the cross to give you forgiveness of sin as he made atonement for your sins and to give you the only hope that there is. He is the only hope for salvation. It is not a church. It is not you trying to be good enough. It's not trying to be religious. It is coming to Jesus Christ and saying that I am separated from you because of my sin and the wages of sin is death.
But you came and you went to the cross and you cried out, it is finished, te telestai. And he did the work and he paid the price and he died for my sins and his death on the cross is sufficient for forgiveness of sin to come in the right relationship with the Father and have the hope of heaven. And as we understand that, as most of you know, that he would rise from the grave three days later. You see, all the other religious leaders are in their grave, Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha. And that's what makes Christianity so unique. People will come to me and say, you know, what makes Christianity so unique? How do you know that it's true? Well, there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And he did the work and paid the price. All other religions say this is what you have to do to earn salvation. Only true Christianity says that he did the work on the cross. And he rose from the grave. And now you come in faith. So spend some time because he is your hope. And he is the only one that will save you and can save you. Come in in faith and never forget that. The love that he has for you in going to the cross for you personally and individually. But as you do, that as you remember that, that you can be a testimony of the reality of Jesus Christ and him crucified. But as you minister to others, listen, that as you minister, parents, to your kids, and as you talk to them, your family members and others in life, those that you minister to, we don't make them feel guilty. We don't have to manipulate their emotions or make them feel bad, but simply help them to understand clearly what Jesus did for them by going to the cross for them. There are even churches today, not only Christians, that want to remain a secret disciples. You see, I think that Joseph and Nicodemus show us something very important here. You cannot remain a secret disciple for very long. And these two men are an encouragement to me, and I hope for you, of the boldness and the courage that they took and, and that they would come to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus, saying, we don't care what's going to happen to us, but we believe in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And they would come to the full understanding that the tomb would be empty a few days later, three days later, after they placed Jesus in that tomb. And it encourages me and there are even churches today that don't want to embrace Christ crucified. They want to have the best light shows. They want to have, you know, the smoke machines. They want to have the greatest media presentation and the restaurants and the coffee shops and the tennis courts and, you know, soccer fields and more like country clubs. Now, I'm not saying those things in and of themselves are wrong. We were one of the first churches to put in a coffee shop. There's nothing wrong with having lights. We use media to reach this community in Colorado with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you see, you don't want to do those things, and churches should not do those things at the expense of we're not going to talk about sin, we're not going to talk about repentance, and let's not talk about Christ crucified. But we individually, in our families, and we here at Calvary Chapel, that we would say, I am not ashamed of Jesus and him crucified for me. Because he saved me, me a sinner. And to say like Paul said, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And I'm ready to declare it to the world. And I'm ready to declare it to my world. To those who are linked to me in my life. 
And you see, for me, I'm going to declare it. And we live in a culture and we live in a society. Listen, we have got to come to understand that as you come to Christ and you proclaim it, the world is not going to embrace you and applaud you for that. That there is going to be a cost. But it can be nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. And what for Jesus, what he did for us. And here, as I stand behind this pulpit, then I'm going to declare Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if it comes to the time where they shut us down, then they shut us down. If it comes where they take us off the radio and we can no longer do that, then that's what they do. If it even comes to a time where someday they throw us in jail, then throw me in jail. Because I'm going to proclaim the only hope that there is in this world, not to be obnoxious, not to ram it down people's throats, but with love and with truth to say, Jesus Christ, he is our hope. There is none other. And he came and he died for you because he loves you. And Dick Ademus and Joseph of Arimathea, I can't wait to meet these guys. And to be able to say thank you for the courage and the boldness that you showed and the cost that you ended up paying. But the eternal life and the rewards that are theirs and will be ours can't be compared to that. Listen, be a light. And this Christmas season, you're going to be around people that you love and you care for, that you work alongside of. Be a testimony to the reality of Jesus and what he did for us and for them. And don't be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this this story that sometimes gets overlooked, but is so incredible. These two men that step out of the shadow of the cross here to take care of the body of Jesus. And so, Father, I just pray, first of all, that we would embrace it and believe it and not be ashamed of it. I do pray if there's anyone that is here, whether you're here in the sanctuary or in the coffee shop or you're listening on live stream or whether you're going to listen to this later on the radio, that if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, to be forgiven for salvation and to come in the right relationship with the Father. It's not too late. We want to give you that invitation right now, even today, for you to come to him and call upon him. Even as that thief called upon him 2,000 years ago, the Lord, his words to you are come. It's always come. Not get away, but come. And to come in faith and believe that you need to be forgiven because you are a sinner. And that Jesus died for you because of his love for you. The perfect lamb of God who made atonement for your sins. Rose again to give us a living hope as Peter writes in his epistle through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is your salvation. There is none other. And if there's anyone here at this service at this time that we want to give you the invitation to respond to him. Not to religion, but to him personally. Relationship with Jesus Christ. To come to salvation. Because he is your salvation. And today is the day of salvation. The scripture says, and you can pray right where you are, that Jesus, I come to you just as I am a sinner. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on that cross for me. It is finished. Forgive me. 
and that you're alive speaking to my heart and I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for hearing me and I want to know you and walk with you. I thank you for this new beginning, this new heart. I thank you for what Jesus did for me and it's in his name that I pray. And listen, if anybody prayed that prayer, that even if you're in a coffee shop or here in the sanctuary, if you prayed that prayer, will you do me a favor, put your hand up, anybody at all? God bless you. I see you in the corner. God bless you. And I see you over here on the right. God bless you guys. Anybody else? And raising your hand doesn't save you. It's, it's like I've made a decision for Christ and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And Lord, there may be those that I don't see Lord, they have made decisions for you, and I thank you for all those this morning and the three services that have come to Christ. And I pray that you'd bless them and fill them with your love. And I thank you for this time that we've had together. And I know that so many are traveling right now and gone. I pray that you'd bless them and keep them safe. But Lord, that this Christmas season, that truly be a time of joy and goodwill and peace towards all because we have the Prince of Peace in our hearts. Lord, as we go our way, may we be a light to others. And Lord, give the greatest news ever proclaimed that the tomb is empty and Jesus Christ died for our sins. Thank you for this morning. Bless everyone here as we go our way. May we be encouraged and just having boldness to stand on truth and proclaim it to others. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God is good, isn't he? God is so cool. Would you please stand?